Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Welcome everyone to Too Good To Be True. Thank you to all the listeners. Are you ready for an inquiring show about the Day of Love Pass incident and other unexplained mysteries? Before we start getting in details, let's just briefly, briefly talk about psychic insight and how we apply it. We choose a subject, then research it, and based on that research, we determine what we think we think needs to be explained by creating a series of questions. Then Justina provides psychic insight to answer those questions. The psychic insight is narrated towards the end of the show. Accepting the psychic insight is a question of individual belief. Now let's go through the disclaimers. Here are the disclaimers. Neither of us claim to have any expertise in any subjects that we discuss. We relate information we find through research and the psychic insight. We are always delighted to hear from the listeners. The show only lasts an hour. We don't have the time to present exhaustive research on any topic. That This means there will be information that we do miss. We want to provide a basis for the psychic insight. We don't care if a theory turns out too good to be true, as the show name suggests. We are only interested in finding out more of the truth about topics. Spirit can only relate insight that is appropriate for our time in history. Free will cannot be affected. Only comments that are appropriate for our time can be given through the psychic insight. Much of the subject matter in shows will have already been covered again and again in other shows. We want to look into subjects in a new, different way and be thought-provoking. We're not good with pronouncing names. We apologize. And another disclaimer for this show is neither of us have expertise in investigating unexplained events. If we have misstated anything, we apologize in advance. Also, for the living people associated with the the Diet Loaf Pass incident, again, we apologize if we mistake anything. Thank you, Justina. I chose the subject of the Diet Loaf Pass incident and other explained mysteries. Why did you choose that tragic event as the first unexplained mystery? There seems to be no logical explanation for what apparently happened. There are lots of theories for the death of nine experienced skiers hiking in the northern Ural Mountains in Siberia in the then Soviet Union. Why don't you provide some background? Skiers hiking in mountains sounds like a fun vacation. Yes, there's a huge irony in people doing something for fun only to have their lives end so abruptly. Who were the skiers hiking in the mountains? The nine people were led by Igor Dyadlov, the group's leader, age 23. 
The eight others were aged from 20 to 24, with the exception of Semyo Solitaryov, who was aged 38. Also in the original group was Yuri Yudin, who had to turn around back, had to turn back due to illness. Yuri passed away in 2013, aged 75. He was 21 at the time of the incident. These were all young people, with the exception of one middle-aged person. Were they students, and what was their route? Yes, counting Yuri Yudin, there were eight men and two women who were either undergraduate or graduate students from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, which is now the Ural Federal University, located in Yekaterinburg, located near the border with Europe and Asia. Their, their route was as follows. On January the 25th, 1959, they arrived at Ivdel, about 330 miles or 530 kilometers north of Yekaterinburg. They then took a truck ride to a place called Vizhay, the last inhabited settlement to the north. The hike from Vizhay to Mount Oraton started on January the 27th. The translation of Mount Oraton in the local tribal language is apparently Mount Don't Go There. On January 28th, Yuri Yurdin turned back. On January the 31st, the group arrived in a highland area and prepared for climbing. On February the 1st, the group started to move through a mountain pass and then the bad weather moved in. What is the weather like in the northern Ural Mountains in February? It's, it's Siberia, so it's cold. Sub-zero temperatures around zero Fahrenheit or around the minus teens in Celsius would be expected in winter. Presumably, the higher you climb, the colder it gets. So I expect it would have been sub-zero in degrees Fahrenheit or below eight, minus 18 degrees Celsius. It was probably colder than a freezer. As mentioned, on February the 1st, the snow rolled in and the visibility decreased. Were these experienced adventures or were they an environment they weren't ready for? By accounts, they were experienced in the mountain environment and they would have been prepared for the weather closing in high up. The route they took was considered to be very difficult, though. So what did they do when they had to deal with the weather? Did they make a camp to see out the snowstorm? They apparently lost their way and went to the west towards Mount Kolat Siakal, which translates to Dead Mountain in the Manzi tribal language. The Manzi, spelled M-A-N-S-I or M-A-N-S-A-I, are the native people of Siberia. When the hikers realized where they were, they set camp rather than retreating lower down about a mile or 1.6 kilometers to a, to a forested area. I think that camping in a forest rather than on a mountain slope would offer more shelter. That's hard to argue with. After the fact, Yuri Yudin guessed that they either didn't want to lose the altitude they had gained or they wanted to practice camping on a mountain slope. We'll have to get to this and more unexplained events after this short break. Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, 
Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back to Too Good to be True. And before the break, we were giving a little background of what happened before the Diet Loaf actual incident occurred and the people tragically lost their lives. So just to go into some more information about the whole incident, when were the group expected to return? They'd expect, they had expected to be back at Vizhay where they'd started their trek on February the 12th, but Igor Dietlov had told Yuri Yudin it might take longer. So when did the alarm go off that they were missing? The search didn't start uh, until after February the 12th, as delays often occurred for adventurers. It took until February the 20th for a search to be organized after relatives had demanded it. After volunteers on foot had been unsuccessful, the military and the militia provided planes and helicopters. So when were they found? On February the 26th, searchers found the campsite on Mount Kolat Siauko. Their tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It had been torn open from the inside. Did they see any tracks from the tent? They saw eight or nine sets of footprints, not made by boots, but were made by people only wearing socks. Where did the searchers find the remains of the young people? Only to quote from a London Daily Mail article from the 23rd of August 2013, which gives a description of uh, what was found. So, quote, the first bodies, frostbitten and frozen stiff, were discovered lying in the snow on flat land near a river a mile from the tent next to the remains of a long burnt out fire. Around 350 yards away lay the corpse of Igor Dietlov, the 23-year-old engineering student from Euro Polytechnic who had put the expedition together and was its leader. His name would later be given to the area where the tragedy took place. Nearby, a search dog sniffed out the remains of Zina Kolomogorova, 22, under four inches of snow, and that of Rustam slow boating. Their bodies were in a line 200 yards apart, as if they were been trying to crawl behind each other back up to the shelter of the tent, but never made it. Another two months went by before the rest of the group were found, under 15 feet of snow in a den that had been desperately hollowed out for themselves before succumbing to the cold. Some of the group had broken bones and terrible internal injuries, but strangely, no external wounds, not even scratches on the skin. Stranger still, 
our bits of clothing contain higher than normal levels of radiation. Indeed, post-mortem ex examinations of all nine bodies threw up a string of bewildering anomalies. There were some fully clothed, but others nearly naked. Most, disconcer most disconcerting of all was Ludmilla Dubanina's body, which was missing her tongue and eyes. Unquote. That sounds truly awful. What were the official results of the investigation? I will continue quoting from the same Daily Mail, Daily Mail article. Quote, the official Soviet investigator into the tragedy, Led, Lev Ivanov, could find no answers. He concluded in his hastily composed report that all nine deaths had been caused by what he described as an unknown elemental force for which they were unable to overcome. Pri privately, he told people he thought they'd been killed by aliens in a UFO. And that was where the official investigations ended. Case closed. Access to the entire area was sealed off from prying eyes for the next four years, by which time the authorities believed this incident would have disappeared off the radar, as many strange happenings did in the old Soviet, Soviet empire, unquote. So, in other words, the deaths were caused by an unknown cause, an unknown elemental force which they were unable to overcome. What does that mean? I don't think it means anything except that the cause of death for the nine people could not be determined or explained. There were pictures of the group from rolls of film found in cameras in the half-destroyed tent. The picture shows the group being happy and involved in normal activities for their trek. The last photograph on the films did show a flash across the night sky, but could have just been an accidental overexposure. Besides aliens and a UFO being blamed, what other theories are there? There's a website, uh, dietlovepass.com, which lists a number of theories, which start with a strange idea that the group were murdered by CIA agents with members of the group having had radioactive samples to hand over to the CIA agents. This was a means of getting close enough to photograph them. None of that seems to make any more sense than the alleged aliens in a UFO. What is the next theory? The hikers were mistaken for escaped prisoners from a gulag prison. These were labor camps dedicated to political prisoners. There was a gulag located not far from the site of the tragedy. Some of the political prisoners were World War II veterans. A piece of clothing was found by Yuri Yurdin at the site that didn't belong to the nine. It was a distinctive obmotki used to wrap around the feet or legs by World War II soldiers as well as prison inmates. Assuming that Yuri Yudin was correct, that the clothing didn't belong to one of the nine, that is rather odd. World War II vintage clothing was probably not something young people would wear in 1959. What theory comes next? Soviet special forces killed the nine because they had stumbled across a military testing area. The Soviets were apparently testing R2, R12 sorry, in the area. These were to come in service in March of 1959 and will be armed with nuclear warheads. Why not just arrest them and put them in a gulag? Why did they have to be killed? Also, if the area was sensitive, why would it be open to hikers? Killed by Soviet special forces doesn't make sense. They could just have been arrested on their way back. The next theory is that the nine were murdered by Western special forces, but that seems implausible. This theory does include information one of the nine may have been exposed to radiation in the past, and this might explain the radiation on some of the clothes. What about the local inhabitants? Were they suspected? 
Yes, the local Manzai tribes people committing the murders is a theory. The mountains are their hunting grounds. What are the Manzai people like? In 1959, there are only about 6,000 of them in total. About 60% of them were native speakers spread over, the, over a vast area. Apparently, being hunter-gatherers and considered to be primitive, they would have been poor. The money found in the tent would have been a large amount for the Manzi. Nothing seemed to be taken. Some Manzi hunters were arrested and interrogated by authorities in March of 1959, but apparently none were charged. But the theory gets, now gets really odd. So far, everything seems rather odd. Yeah, the group of nine could have eaten fly agaric mushrooms to get high. Apparently, if mush the mushrooms are dried out, that takes out the toxicity. There is a theory that some of the group became drugged and a fight broke out. So you're sheltering in a snowstorm on the side of a mountain, and then you think it's time to break out the magic mushrooms. I think you'd have more immediate concerns, such as keeping warm, fed, and hydrated. It wouldn't seem to be the right time for a rec recreational drug. Yes, being in survival mode in sub-zero temperatures, that theory doesn't seem to make sense. They had all given up cigarettes for the trip. So lighting up a, if so, if lighting up a cigarette was out of the question, then magic mushrooms would seem to be a strange option. The next theory was that an avalanche occurred, which sounds more plausible. That might explain the hasty exit from the tent that was ripped from the inside. But pictures of the tent taken by searchers don't seem to support the avalanche theory. Even if there were an avalanche, you might expect that footwear would be retrieved and that a new shelter would be made, even assuming some casualties. The forested area was not that far away down the slope. A UFO theory was mentioned earlier based on a comment from the official investigator, Lev Ivanov. What was that theory? Was that theory investigated? Apparently, several geologists, 43 miles or 70 kilometers from the mountains, saw something glowing and pulsating orbits flying in the direction of Mount Kolat's Siakal on February the 1st. That's the day of the snowstorm when the group made camp on the side of, the, of that mountain. The Manzi Trizon made pictures of flying spheres, and apparently this and other testimony were suppressed. Later in 1990, Lev Ivanov admitted in an article that he had published that under pressure from his superiors, he had suppressed evidence of fireballs or, or UFOs. Here is a quote from the Ivanov article. Quote, we found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again, this once again confirmed that heated beams of strong but completely unknown, at least to us, energy were directing their firepower towards specific objects, acting select selectively, unquote. This quote relates to the events from May of 1959 when Ivanov visited the site with a colleague, but there are still more theories. What are those? I think that people would have to have some pretty good imaginations to come up with more theories. There's infrasound, there's yetis, a lightning strike, the stove, and gravity fluctuation. The yeti theory sounds interesting. Yetis or the abominable snowmen are ape-like mountain creatures that may or may not exist and are usually associated with the Himalayas. They are supposed to be creatures like Bigfoot but with white fur. Attacked by yetis who normally live in the Himalayas seems unlikely. Also, the existence of yetis in many sources is just thought of as legends or folklore. 
You may as well mention the remaining theories. The infrasound theory relates to a wind vortex in the mountains terrifying the campers with low frequency sound. Lightning strikes and snowstorms sometimes happen and may go with UFOs having been mistaken as appearing. It could have been explosive ball lightning that looked like UFOs. The homemade stove in parts with remnants of food were found in a tent. Maybe the stove had caught fire exploded, spooking everyone. The theory of gravity fluctuation would have involved flinging the cameras out of their tent to land in different places outside of it. None of the theories mentioned seem to have strong evidence behind them. Well, some of the theories just don't seem to be credible. But why stay in your socks and not go back for your boots? And what was the cause of the internal injuries? There was no mention of the tracks of alleged attackers. I think it's time to move on to the next unexplained mystery, the Teos Hum. So what is the Teos Hum? The Teos Hum occurs in Teos in New Mexico in the United States. New Mexico has its share of weird events or strange events. Where in the state is the Teos located? Nowhere near Roswell, if that's what you're, what you're thinking. Teos is at the other end of the state, 70 miles or 130 kilometers northeast of Santa Fe. Teos is derived from the name of the place of Red Willows in the Native American Teos language, apparently. The population is under 6,000. So, does everyone there hear a strange humming noise? Actually, not many peer people hear it. Here's a quote from the Life Science website. website. Quote, the hum seems to have been first reported in the early 1990s. Joe Mullins, a professor emeritus of engineering at the University of New Mexico, conducted research into the Taos hum. Based on a survey of residents, about 2% of the general population was believed to be hearers, who, the, who's those who claimed to, be, to detect the hum. Sensitive equipment was set up in the homes of several of the hearers, measuring sounds and vibrations. But after extensive testing, nothing unusual was detected. The research revealed, however, there was not a single identifiable Taos hum, but several different ones that people reported. Some describe it as a whir, hum or buzz. The fact that not everyone heard the same thing was puzzling and suggests that they may have been reporting subjective experience instead of objective sounds, unquote. It doesn't appear to be some compelling evidence that anything unusual is occurring, but we'll have to continue talking about the Teos hum and our last unexplained mystery after this short break. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we were talking about the Teo's hum. And I was making the comment that there doesn't seem to be much compelling evidence that any hum is actually happening. And another point to that is don't insects make noises like that. Yeah, that could be one theory. Here's another quote from Life Science. Uh, quote, humans live in a constant sea of background noise, most of it unnoticed until we start paying attention to all the sounds and focusing on them. While many people may assume that locating the source of a sound should be easy, in practice it can be very difficult. There are hundreds of potential sources of noises, including traffic, boats, planes, insects, large machines, wind, freight trains, mining and other industries. It's not as simple as listening for a sound and walking toward it until you find its source, unquote. But hums are also heard in other places. Which other places? There's a strange hum that has been heard for decades in Bristol in the west of England. Recently, a cause for the hum has been suggested. Here is a quote from the BBC News website dated January the 19th, 2016. Quote, over the past fortnight, Bristolians have been reporting their problems with the hum to the local newspaper and on social media. It has been driving them to distraction, they say, and no one can tell where on earth it's coming from. But it's not the first time the hum was has kept Bristol awake. In the 1970s, hundreds of the city's residents complained to the council that a strange noise was audible at night. Most of the experts drafted, drafted in put it down to factory noise, electricity pylons or tinnitus, while some of the more imaginative suggestions included the sound from flying sources hovering over the city or secret military activity. Eventually it stopped as abruptly as it began but not before it had spawned reports of equally unidentifiable hums in other towns across Britain. Then last year, French scientists announced that they had solved the conundrum. It was, they said, the effect of continuous waves cause, uh, causing the ocean floor to vibrate. We have made a big step in explaining this mysterious signal and where it, where it is coming from, and what the mechanism and what is the mechanism, said Fabrice Arduan of the Central National de la Research Scientifique, but his answer did, doesn't immediately explain why the sound was only around for a number of years or why it might, might have returned, unquote. By the way, a fortnight is two weeks. Uh, tinnitus is a medical condition which is known as ringing in the ears, affecting about 20% of the population due to aging or ear injury. The article says that the hums occur in other parts of Britain. Where else are the hums heard? Apparently there are hums in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, Bondi, Australia, Kokomo and Indiana in the United States. The list goes on. Are there any common factors? Yes, there are. The hums are usually heard indoors, get louder at night and tend to occur in remoter areas, although Bristol, England or Windsor, Ontario are hardly remote. Without any strong theories to explain the hums, I think it is time to move on to our final unexplained mystery, which is the SS Oorang Medan. This is a rather odd story. It could well be a hoax. Uh, the, the name sounds like orangutan. I don't think it's orangutan. But why did you want to talk about a story and then immediately jump it to jump to it being a hoax? Because if it is a hoax, the reason for the story being made up to fool people or for whatever reason may be just as interesting as a real story. So why do you think a hoax is actually a possibility? The Esarang Medan was not listed on Lloyd's Register of Shipping for the time in question, 
suggesting there was no such ship. It was supposed to be a Dutch merchant ship. Let's put Lloyd's register aside for now at least and explain the events. If the story is true, the SS uh, Orangmedan was in the Straits of Malacca between Sumatra and the Malay Peninsula on June 7, 1947. Two American vessels in the area, the SS City of Baltimore and the SS Silver Star, among others, picked up distress messages from the ship. The following message in Morse code was received. Uh, SOS from Orangmedan, we float. All officers including the captain dead in chart room and on bridge. Probably whole, whole of the crew dead. Later followed dots and dashes, not making sense. The two words, I die, then there was nothing. So they went to look for the ship. What did they find? The crew of the Silver Star found the ship undamaged with bodies on their backs, with mouths gaping open, uh, facing upwards with staring eyes. There were no survivors and no evidence of injury. So they could just tow the ship back to port and conduct a proper investigation, right? That didn't happen. A fire broke out on board, then the ship exploded and sunk. Fortunately, crew from the Silver Star left the ship in time to survive without incident. I don't think it was a very good idea to stick around and try and fight a fire, not knowing what had killed the crew. But was that the end of the story? Of course there were theories, but there were three main ideas of what had happened, including unsecured hazardous material, carbon, carbon monoxide poisoning, or a UFO. Was there any evidence to support any of the theories? All the evidence went down with a ship. That's partly why I think it may be a hoax. Even if there were no physical evidence, there should have been an inquiry, and somebody might have come forward with some information. But if the ship wasn't registered, there wouldn't be any point in an inquiry because there couldn't be any insurance money to claim. But wouldn't there be some sort of inquiry demanded by the dead crew's relatives and friends? That's why I'm thinking it's a hoax. A ship, do a ship doesn't just blow up after all the crew have died, and that's that. Nobody seems to care. Okay. Given that the story seems to have more holes than Swiss cheese, what were the theories in more detail? The unsecured hazardous material could have been smuggled and included substances like potassium cyanide or nitroglycerin. The material could have been a nerve agent left over from World War II. If seawater had leaked in and contacted the chemical, it could have reacted to create a toxic gas. Wouldn't the crew of the Silver Star notice a bad odor or start choking? How did the ship just catch fire and then explode? I think the first question depends on how long it took the Silver Star to reach the Orang Mudan. The absence of a log with entries and names, events, dates and times as normally required for seagoing vessels is strike three for me. What was behind the carbon monoxide theory? If the boiler malfunctioned and released a lot of carbon monoxide and killed the crew, it then completely malfunctioned, blowing up and sinking the ship. You're on a deck on a ship with carbon monoxide being released from below, while being in open waters with some type of breeze. How could the carbon monoxide not be blown away by the fresh air? That theory doesn't make any sense. So what about the UFO? I think if you don't really know, you're left with a UFO or something paranormal. If there's a paranormal theory and there's obviously lots of room to explain away the lack of any normal evidence. Finally, what do you know about the SS City of Baltimore and the SS Silver Star? I wasn't able to confirm that ship with those names were in service in 1947. 
this story doesn't seem to hold water. But I'm still fascinated why why a story so easy to debunk is still out there. Was there an incident with another ship at another time? Uh, or I should say, was or was there an incident with another ship at another time where they changed the names to protect the not-so-innocent? I think it's time to get away from this story, and I think it's time for the psychic insight. So do you want to ask the first question? Here's the first question on the subject of the Diet Love Pass. Was there anything odd about Semyon Solitaryov, age 38, being much older than the others in the group? Yes. What would that be? Basically, it had to do with the age gap, which is was significant, and basically a lot of different past lives. Did this affect the outcome for the group? Yes and no. In some ways, yes, and in other ways, it did not matter. Were the group other than Semyo Solitaryov connected through past lives? Yes. Was it written in the past of the younger eight of the nine connected through past lives to die like this together? Yes. Was it written in the path of Semyon Zolotaryov to die like this in, in this manner? No. Was Semyon Zolotaryov a student just like the others in the group? A student, yes, but it was more complicated than that. Did Semyon Zolotaryov have a hidden agenda? Basically, it was to get information about other people and try to fit in as a normal person. Were the events leading up to the tragedy as reported to the, uh, with the group arriving at the northern outpost of Vise on January 25th of 1959, correct? Yes. Did the group set off from Vise for Mount Oraton on January the 27th of 1959? Yes. Did Yuri Yudin turn back on January the 28th? It was actually the 27th. Why did Yuri Yurden turn back? Was it due to illness? Illness and an intuition, so a bit of both. Did the group arrive in a highland area on January the 31st? Yes. Were the group in a mountain pass when the bad weather moved in? Yes. Why did the group camp on the mountainside rather than dropping down to the shelter of the forested area? They thought that the mountain would actually be safer since they were worried that some type of avalanche or situation would happen and they would be crushed in the trees. Were the hikers, were the hikers mistaken for escapees from a gulag? No. Did Soviet special forces kill the group? No. Did Western special forces kill the group? No. Did members of the Manzai tribe commit the murders? So they were indirectly responsible, but they only had some very small influence, yes. Did members of the group consume magic mushrooms in a tent, causing them to get high and start a fight? They had different substances with them, but no, they were not high and fighting when everything occurred. Did an avalanche make the group leave the tent very quickly with no boots? No. Were the group attacked by yetis or some form of mountain creature? They're attacked by creatures, yes. What type of creatures? So it is not a yeti, but more of a type of wolf. So it is a mix between basically a supernatural creature that looks a lot like a wolf. And the tribe, the Manzi tribe, basically knows about them and knows about their presence. Were the deaths due to a visit of UFO and actions of extraterrestrial beings? So you call these beings extraterrestrial since they aren't from here, 
but a UFO did not come down. They naturally live in the mountains. Did these creatures come in from another dimension? Originally, they're from another place, yes. What caused the observed burning of pine trees at the edge of the forest? These creatures. The creatures did that? Correct. The first bodies were found about a mile from the tent on Flatland. How did they get there? They were dragged. Were Zena Kolomogorova and Rustam Slobodin trying to crawl back to the tent when they died? Yes. How long did the remaining members of the group survive in the den they hollowed out for themselves? Not very long. What caused the broken bones and internal injuries without external marks on the bodies? These creatures. So they basically got thrown. The bodies got thrown. But this caused the internal injuries and did not really leave surface injuries. So the whole intention was to kill the different people, not really make them suffer. What caused the higher than normal level of radiation on some of the clothes? Both these creatures and the area they were in. Why were some bodies clothed while others had hardly any clothes? From the tearing and the grabbing. Why did Lumila Dubanina's body have the tongues and eyes missing? Let's just say that these creatures do not really feed on humans, but they are curious about humans. What caused the flash in the last picture in a roll of film? We'll have to continue with the questions and the psychic insight after this short break. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back to Too Good To Be True. And before the break, we are going through the questions and then the psychic insight. So, Dad, can you please repeat the last question that was stated before the break? Sure. What caused the flash in the last picture in a roll of film? When the creatures showed up. Is there anything more to know about these creatures? 
Yes. So basically, a lot of the urban legends are actually almost werewolves. So they are not the same species, if that makes sense. So some people's sightings of werewolves are actually these creatures. So basically, they lead very isolated lives. They look like wolves at times, and they do enjoy different mountainous areas and snowy areas. And the problem is that they are curious about humans, but also tend to stay isolated. So sometimes they do come out and have strange events happen associated with them, but most of the time they leave humans and other creatures alone. Why did they have to attack the group of nine people? So the problem is the land is very... It has its own energy about it and its own spiritual presence, and that's where the tribe comes into play. So the tribe knew about the existence of the people there, and the creatures were eventually alerted. What can we learn from the tragedy when nine young lives were lost? To always be prepared and make sure that someone always knows where you are going, and always be prepared for the worst possible situation. So always make sure you have some type of weapon or some type of protection on you. The investigation concluded that the deaths were due to an unknown elemental force which they were unable to overcome. Did the investigators privately have an idea of what actually occurred? There were rumours, but not exactly, no. I'm going. I'm now going to change the subject to the Taos Hum and other hums. How many people hear the Taos Hum? Quite a few. Why do different people hear, hear different things in Taos? Because the energy is different for different people. So the hum actually comes across differently depending on who you are. Why wasn't a Taos hum picked up by sensitive measured, measuring equipment? Because even some of the equipment can pick up what the human mind and human ears can hear. So it's at a level that technology will not currently be able to record it. What calls the Taos hum if it's not just people's imagination? It's a buildup of energy. Where is the energy from? So basically the energy is from not really within the earth, but on top of the earth. So it's a spot where the energy builds up and turns into sound vibration. Is the strange hum heard in Bristol, England due to waves on the ocean floor creating vibration? Yes and no. So yes, it is related to that. But again, it's the energy that's creating the actual sound waves. So you could say, yes, it is the energy of the ocean. Why does the hum in Bristol seem to disappear for years and then return? Because the buildup of energy has to be great enough. Are there hums in Windsor, Ontario, Bondi, Australia, and Kokomo, Indiana? Yes. Are there many different places in the world that hums are heard? Yes. Is there any purpose to the hums? No, not really, no. It's just heard. What should we do if we hear a hum? Well, first, obviously check if there is some kind of source. And then two, just feel into the energy. And obviously some people will think that they are crazy or it's in their head. But that's why it's very important to be able to feel into the energy, especially the energy of the earth. It's because sometimes the energy does build up into things such as vibrational waves. Is there anything to fear uh, about the energy that creates the hum? No. I'm going to change the subject to the Orang Midan. Was there a real mystery in the past, but names, times, and locations changed? Yes and no. The story is very expounded on. The SS Orang Midan mystery is really a hoax. Yes. How was the hoax created? 
basically just some people with wild imaginations. Why was the hoax created? For entertainment purposes and to see how many people would actually believe in it. Was it just normal people that created the hoax? Yes. Why would anybody take the story seriously? Because a lot of stories that are more different, people believe without doing their own evidence and research. Why isn't the alleged mystery totally debunked? Because it is very hard to debunk things, especially without any physical evidence. So physical evidence is the thing that always proves or disproves something. Why do we enjoy these stories which we know cannot be true? People use their imaginations and think about the what-ifs. And it is human nature to wonder about the unexplained and what the different possibilities and limitations are. That's the end of the questions. Uh, let's start with the last mystery first. The Orang Dan. It was a hoax obvious from minimal checking into the background. The ship allegedly involved didn't have any records to, to support their existence. I don't think there's anything that is too good to be true. But if something quacks like a duck, walks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Yes, <laughs> but it's interesting that the story is still out there. And it's important to base what you believe is true or not true on checking the evidence for yourself. Apparently, the hoax is originally based on a real event to provide the idea, but a hoax nonetheless. The Teo's hum is not the Teo's hum. It is the Teo's hum and lots of different places hum. I think that the good part is that modern science can only partially explain it while people are still telling the truth about hearing it. Yes, it's a harmless form of energy that causes different sounds to be picked up differently by people at many locations. Too good to be true. That depends on what you are prepared to believe. Okay, now to our serious story. Um, for the mystery of the Dialogue Pass, I took I took the idea of the Russian, Russian Yeti too literally. I think that the definition of a Yeti means one of those creatures that are seen, but there is no direct physical evidence for their existence. There seems to be a lot we don't know, but I was having a hard time with the psychic insight until I did some more checking into the background. On the website CryptoNewZoo.com, there's an artist's impression of the alleged Russian Yeti, which resembles a werewolf. So the creatures were human-eyed looking with wolf-like features. Creatures like that are hard to believe. Also hard to believe is that they, they are visitors from another place. Is there any, any more belief in the existence of the Russian Yeti? Mentioned on the CryptoNewZoo.com website is a television program, a dramatization rather than a documentary, The Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives, originally shown on the Discovery Channel and was also shown in Russia in June of 2014. The two-hour account of events with actors attempts to explain the Dyatlov Pass incident in terms of an attack on the hikers by the Russian Yeti. Included in the program are photos, videos, and interviews of sightings in the same region in recent years. They are used to support the view that hikers did indeed lose their lives by the Russian Yeti. The psychic insight indicates that there were more than one creature resembling a werewolf involved. Is there anything we can mention that is too good to be true? I think that raising awareness about the existence of cryptids, including on the Discovery Channel, is about the only positive. Is raising awareness about cryptids too good to be true? That depends on what you are prepared to believe. 
We should have asked the question of why the hikers had to be killed. Surely the Yetis would have been frightening enough. Who would believe them if they reported seeing them? Probably more than enough people to swarm all over the area. The Rang Madan story shows us that people love to use their imaginations. Remember, the area was closed off for four years after the incident. Yes, you're right. Look at all the attention on Bigfoot. There are search organization and television shows and, and lots of alleged eyewitnesses of sightings. So uh, I think that's the end of uh, our mysteries for this week. But um, you're going to mention our Facebook page. Yes. So if you have any comments, suggestions, any topics for upcoming shows, please go to our Facebook page at Too Good To Be True. So you can just go to Facebook and type in Too Good To Be True. And the first two is spelled T-W-O. And you can go there, you can like our page, you can comment, and if you have any comments about today's show. So if you think maybe a UFO was actually involved, if you think there's some other maybe different theory about one of these events, we would love to hear from you. And we would love to hear any possible topics for upcoming shows. Yeah, there's always Easter Island to think about or uh, the Loch Ness Monster. So uh, I guess other suggestions are welcome. Well, and I think the kind of takeaway from our show today, um, from the overall message, is that there's a lot of unexplained events out there and people should do their own research. So it's important for people to research on their own. And if they're really interested in an event, there's tons and tons of information. But with the internet and what it is, there's a lot of true information and a lot of false information. So it's really important to go through that and kind of form your theories from what you believe in. Yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of really fascinating how the internet has took off in the last couple of decades or, tw- or quarter century. Before the internet, uh, I guess you had to go to a library and figure things out. Um, there weren't the resources um, that there are now with instant information, some to be believed, some not to be believed, some to be checked out. So in our day and age, it's fantastic what you can find out in a very short time. And uh, I guess I'm sounding like an old geezer remembering, remembering life before the internet, but uh, it was a very different, uh, it was a different, very different world then, and we tended to believe what we were told on television and what we read in newspapers. Dad, I think you're forgetting that I was alive when we had dial-up, and I wasn't allowed on the internet. So, I think you're forgetting how older I am too, and I remember the internet not being super popular too. But. Um, Just on that note, it's just very important. I mean, even information about, you know, unexplained creatures like the Yeti and the Bigfoot wasn't everywhere like it is now and that everyone could access it. But we would love if everyone could go like our Facebook page, follow us on there, interact with us on there. We would love to hear from you guys. And of course, as always, we thank you for listening and stay tuned for next week's show.